they flew us to New York, flew us to LA, and all of them passed. Like literally every single label. Like we we showcased for everybody. I guess you could say that when we actually did get signed, I, my, the feeling that I felt, it wasn't like this big like, oh my God, it's not like the movies at all. It was very much like underwhelming. Like, I think we just got signed. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of All About the Drums, a new show that's all about drummers, percussionists, and drum manufacturers, and the stories and experiences they've had along the way in their journey in the drumming world. I'm Chris Sears, and on today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Adrian Robeson. You might be familiar with Adrian from his work with the alternative metal group Strata. Their song, Never There, was featured on the soundtrack for Marvel's Elektra movie, starring Jennifer Gardner. And their hit single, Piece by Piece, was featured on Marvel's The Punisher soundtrack, which also helped secure a gold record for the band. Currently, Adrian is playing with Beta State, a new alternative rock band based out of Los Angeles. They just released their newest single, Make It Up To You. We'll also get to hear how Adrian became a drummer, what it's like showcasing for music labels, his experience getting signed to Wind Up Records, and lots more. As always, feedback is greatly appreciated. You can visit allaboutthedrums.com to leave comments and suggestions for future shows. You'll also find show notes, links to Adrian and his bands, and other resources for you. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adrian Robeson on this episode of All About the Drums. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on here. Thanks, man. We've known each other for a while. I'll never forget. Uh, We were working together at Guitar Center. We had some conversations about... um, some auditions that you were going to. I can't remember how you found those, but I remember we're, we're like standing behind the counter and I remember you were really excited about that evening. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was no audition. I mean, there was, excuse me, that's not true. Uh, they had already in their minds decided that they wanted um, that they wanted me to, to join their band. So at the time, it was basically just, you know, as long as you show up, <laughs> and make sure you I, I guys mean, meshed well together yeah as long as personalities were meshing and and you know as long as i could play the songs then it was pretty much like you know i, I don't want to say it was in the bag but it was you know it wasn't a lengthy audition process they didn't pick from multiple candidates they just said hey we want you to join and come practice with us on this day and I did and they said all right you're in the band and then you have a show on Friday so, so <laughs> you're I, in the band <laughs> and you have a show on Friday yeah it was uh it, I auditioned on Wednesday um I got the gig practice on Thursday and I had a show on Friday so wow and it, yeah it was it was actually at the so one of you know I think I'm the type of guy that like sets small goals and then tries to achieve them. And I think if you set those small goals, you know, a lot of small goals turn into a really big goal. You know what I mean? Right. So one of my small goals back then was to play this club called the Cactus Club, which at the time, it's closed now, but at the time it was, you know, 
it was the shit. It was the place you wanted to be, um, if you were a band at least. Uh, they had everyone. Anyone, anyone who was relevant at the time played there. So um, playing that show um, was a really big deal to me. So, I'm sorry, to back up for a second, this is when you first joined the band and they were still called Downside, right? Yeah, so at the time the band was called Downside. Um, later on, we would change the name to Strata, but uh, yeah, that's that's what the band was. So, when you first hooked up with Downside, what was it that kind of introduced you to them and gave you the opportunity uh, to make that connection, which eventually landed you the gig? A lot of it, honestly. You know how they say like you have to be in the right place at the right time. Well. You know, I had been practicing with my other band and we were two doors down. I think they would just come, like when things started going sour with their drummer, they just started being like, well, this guy next door is actually pretty good, you know, or good enough, I guess. Maybe we could try him, you know. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't hurt that, like, you know, they would go out for a cigarette and I'd go out for some fresh air, you know, sweating from playing or whatever. Because uh, the studios got really hot, so we we'd run into read uh, run into each other a lot and uh, kind of developed a, uh, a rehearsal studio friendship, I guess you could say. Right. So I think you know we were already kind of like friends, so to speak, from from that point of view. We, we definitely weren't strangers. Uh, another thing too is that I actually went to high school with the drummer that they kicked out. He was this guy. Um, that I looked up to when I was younger. I remember going to his house for the first time. He had like the biggest drum set ever. It was a pearl, green pearl export, lacquer finish. I want to say like 10 cymbals, like just a ridiculous kit. You know, now you think pearl export, you're like, oh, that's, you know, a really entry-level kit. But back then, you know, just seeing drums was, was enough for me. I was like, you know, that's that's amazing. That drum set looks amazing, so to go from not really seeing drums to seeing that kit, you know, you don't forget a kit like that, especially when you're young, you know, um, it was beautiful. And like, he'd play the hell out of it. Like it was super, he definitely like, when it came to like, a lot of people would say that I hit really hard. I think a lot of that comes from me trying to live up to him, I guess you could say. Patrick Spain was his name. I remember that drum set. I that was at the Campbell gas gaslighter. It was um, dope. His <laughs> kit was dope. But yeah, he hit, he hit so hard. He used to listen to all those really really heavy bands um, like Death, Slayer, like stuff like that. Just anything like double bass and. But yeah, he he totally inspired me as far as like. Um, just wanting to hit hard and just be like a a really showy live drummer, I guess you could say. What was that like being so inspired by someone and then having the opportunity to to step into his his shoes and you know almost take that away from him at the same time? Uh, that had to be, you know, a pretty big debate in your mind. How did that, you know, what was that like and how did it make you feel? Honestly, I really didn't think about it that much because 
there was no like taking away from anything from him. He lost the gig himself. Like it was an empty spot, you know. It wasn't like they were like, "Hey, we should use this guy instead of this guy." That wasn't the case. Like they got rid of him and um they needed somebody else. That was literally it. And I was like, "Well, if it's not going to be me, it's going to be somebody else. I'd rather it be me." You know, they were one of the hottest bands out at the time and I really enjoyed their music. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were like a hot band and but I didn't own the CD type of thing. Like, no, I definitely had the CD. I definitely like listened to it and then like you know, I was a I was definitely a fan first and then when they said, you know, hey, do you want to join? I was like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think what was more of a moral dilemma for me was leaving the band that I already had at the time um, because we already had multiple songs. We were uh, just about to start playing live, you know, and we built that thing from the ground up. So it was, it was kind of at the time, I, I definitely there were like, you know, we did like the whole group hug, like, you know, tears were shed you know, type of thing. Like I was basically leaving their band to do this other band. There was no other, like, it, it was not possible for me to be, to invest time to do both. Right. Um, it, it really sucked. And I, and like to leave those guys, but I mean, they understood, they knew like what we had was just something with zero fans, doesn't even have a record out, stuff like that just a lot of just a bunch of guys in a room with a lot of hope you know and then you know you get something that's already going that you're already a fan of that everyone in the bay area was already looking up to anyways to have them say hey you want to join it was just like they kind of understood they didn't really hold it against me you know we were we still remained really good friends over the years but yeah it was definitely like that was that's what made it hard. That's where I felt like the decision was not just like, hey, you know, sure, I'll join, you know. Right. It was definitely like it was a debate. Put, it, yeah, it was a short debate, <laughs> but it was definitely like a debate. You know, I I had to think about it for a second. What was that? Was there any type of you know, hesitance on your part, just kind of wondering, you know, what if, what if I'm walking away from the wrong thing and walking into something that's, you know, what, what if, uh, they change their mind after a couple months, uh, after just kind of seeing their, their former drummer leave, how did that impact you? Honestly, at the time I wasn't even thinking about that stuff. I was just, I was just stoked to be playing the Cactus Club. You know, like I said before, like you set these small goals and you, you achieve them. For me, like I was like, you know, wow, like I'm playing the Cactus Club. Like this is a good thing. At the time, they already had their foot in the door. Like they already were like talking to like Capitol Records, which, you know, that that stuff never went down. But like at, at the time, you know, it, it was just like a no brainer. It was like, you know, of course you have to do this. You know, this is absolutely what you have to do. It also helped that, you know, so, you know, I auditioned on a Wednesday, practiced on Thursday, and we had the show Friday. Um, the Metro at the time, they did a write-up. They said that Downside tightens up. It was the headline. And um, I thought that was kind of cool. Like, you know, I love Patrick Spain to death, but he definitely um, 
I think would overplay sometimes and it would cause the timing of the song to be like, you know, not, he wouldn't always hit the one. Right. You know, like he would do like these amazing, amazing drum fills and then miss the one. And so like, you know, for me, maybe I didn't do as flashy of a drum fill, but I hit the one. And I think that's kind of what they meant with that, with that uh, headline. So you audition, you get the gig, you practice the next day. The following day, you have a show at the Cactus Club. A yeah, place... the, biggest, the biggest club in San Jose. And then the headlines in the newspaper the next day say, your band tightens up three days after you join. Yeah. Looking back, to be honest, I was like, <laughs> I, I don't even know why they picked me looking back. But hey, I mean, they did. So it is what it is. <laughs> so and the reason the reason why I say that is because I, I definitely like I was like, you know, really into like rap music. And I, you know, I definitely like dressed a little bit more like um, hip hop, I guess, than than metal, I guess. <laughs> Well, if I'm remembering correctly, yellow was your favorite time uh, color at that time. Dude, I, yeah, exactly. Like, I loved bright colors and stuff, and they were all, like, wearing dark. And I remember when they asked me to join, I, I said, I remember asking the lead singer, Eric, I said, do I have to wear black? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no. I guess they didn't really give it. I didn't think they cared about what I looked like. I remember we, we were both working at Guitar Center together. And we would go to lunch together, and you would go, Chris, you got to check out. I remember you got subwoofers in your truck, and you you wanted to show off your audio system. I remember oh, yeah, you were dude. like, you're so in love with these subs and the system you got. And we would go to lunch, and you would turn uh, Dr. Dre's 2001 album up, you know, to the highest setting on the radio. <laughs> We'd go out to lunch and mob around <laughs> a couple you know, big white looking guys mobbing to, to Dr. Dre, you know, while we're running the Jack in a box. <laughs> I definitely, I was that guy for sure. I, I, you know, turn the subs up to 11 and just like piss everyone off, I guess. So what, what was that like though? Having stylistically, you know, you're going into this band and it sounds like you didn't really feel like you fit in, but it sounds like they they were you you didn't feel like you fit in, but they were very open and very welcoming at the same time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Honestly, looking back, I, I sit there and I go, I don't even know why they picked me, but but they did. They like I think they picked me because of like the hi hat style or something. I I remember like I I can't. I don't want to say, I don't want to speak for them, but I think I remember, like, I think I remember Eric saying that he picked me because I had, like, a little percussion thing on the side, like, cowbell woodblock nonsense. On Like, my kit was ridiculous back then, and I had, like, all these splashes and stuff and, like, all this, like, hi-hat work, and, like, I think he picked me because of that. He was like, I really like how he has, like, I just remember him saying that, like he he was really into like the little percussion things on the side, and so like I think that's a really stupid reason to pick somebody. <laughs> but, 
but at the time it was a little little extra pieces and you had i mean you had a really cool uh drum set at that time yeah it was a dw dw collector series in inca gold lacquer black hardware 8 10 12 14 toms fast fast tom size and then uh 18 by 22 kick, and I had a five and a half by 14 Craviato uh, reverse color. So it was gold hardware with uh, ebony uh, lacquer, like or ebony satin lacquer. I think I don't know. And I think I remember at the time it was like you you were calling it your Wu Tang kit. Oh yeah, I love Wu Tang. So I mean I, that's why the whole kit was yellow and black, like a bumblebee. It was a bumblebee kit. It was the probably the, kit. you know, looking back, it's probably like the ugliest kit like ever. But, you know, <laughs> everybody remembered it. That was definitely one thing, you know, like it wasn't like just some random black kit that everyone forgot. They were like, no, that's they had the yellow and black kit like they had the bumblebee kit. It was something that people remembered. I guess because not like who who honestly gets a yellow and black kit like let's back up for a second um where did it all begin where when did you get your first drum set and what was it that really inspired you to pick up the drums in the first place there was a guy named Frank Guinero and he played in this band called the rubber band and I was in middle school total nerd total like not popular by any means. The cool kids all sat in the quad together and they, all those cool kids would always talk to all the cool girls, all the hot girls, whatever. And that was not me. That was definitely not me. And I would, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but randomly, you know, I really shared a love of music with these guys. So I gravitated towards that and they let me hang out with them sometimes. I don't want to say like all the time, but like, you know, they'd kind of let me in their circle and, and see what's up. Anyway, I remember at the time, um, the rubber band, they, they played a show at the school in the quad and Frank Guinero did a drum solo. Now when I say drum solo, I mean like your standard beat and then some tom rolls, like nothing crazy. You know, we were kids, but at the time, when you're that young, you're like, oh my God, that is amazing. And I remember after the show, like all these girls went up to him and I was like, that, that is what I need to do. That is what I want to do. I want to play drums. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Adrian Robeson. In a moment, we'll hear about Adrian's experience getting signed to Wind Up Records and much more. But first, we want to share some news about a brand new product for drummers that wants to get inside your pants. MDK, which stands for Mobile Drum Kit, is a new electronic mobile drum system that fits in your pocket by Mammoth Sound. The device has two playing surfaces for your hands and two foot triggers that plug in for your feet. The best part is, the entire MDK system is small enough to carry with you. It's about the size of an iPhone or Samsung Galaxy. And since this mobile drum kit is core MIDI compatible, it's the first drum product we've seen that you could plug in and actually take with you on the go. Could you imagine if your drumsticks were the largest piece of gear you had to carry with you? 
MDK just launched on Kickstarter, and that's where your support comes in to bring this mobile drum kit to life. With your help, drummers could finally have a device that you could take with you anywhere you go. MDK works with most music apps and makes practicing on the go with real drum sounds easy. Would you like to see this mobile drum kit become a reality? If so, visit allaboutthedrums.com for the Kickstarter link and to learn more about MDK, including a short video. You could help bring MDK, the first mobile drum kit, to a pocket on you. And now, back to the show. You get the gig with, with Downside. You audition, three days later, you're playing this huge show. It's you know, one one of many check marks it sounds like you had for things you really wanted to accomplish music-wise. And then you're in the band, and what happens? How how do you guys end up running into to wind up records? What was that what was that like? Uh it's not what you think it was like. Like it's not like this big, like, oh my God, we're signed. It, it was not that at all. At least for me. I mean I'm sure I can't speak for the other guys, but like I think you have to go a little further back before you talk about wind up. I think basically what it was is, you know, I bought this thing called a Digi 001. It was um, basically Pro Tools. Anyway, um, I bought this Digi 001, and at the time, it was like one of the first. It was it was like one of the first affordable computer-based recording devices. And before that, it was, everything was like, you know, 8-track or digital 8-track. And so, like, you know, to be able to record on your computer, I mean, it's been around, but it was really only made for professionals. So that, um, to, to get something on the consumer side that you can do the same things as the professionals, like, that was kind of a big deal. Anyway, I bought this thing, and when I joined Downside, I remember telling Eric, you know, hey, we're going to record our own album. And I remember Eric saying, it's impossible. You have to go to a real studio for it. Um, you have to, uh, you know, spend all this money and, and get all the, you know, amps and everything. And like, um, and in reality, we ended up just recording, like I just literally recorded that first album, like in the rehearsal studio and just did it all, like just read some books and like, put the mics up where the books told me to put the mics, um, you know, kind of just listened back and said, okay, that sounds cool. That doesn't sound cool. And like literally just did that and recorded the whole album. And like at the end of it, we're like, Hey, remember that time that you told me that we couldn't record our own album? Well, we just did. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that those demos we ended up getting mixed by, um, these A-list mixers, these guys were like top-notch guys and they would take the song and they would mix it. It would sound amazing. The only thing that we didn't record by ourselves was the vocals. We, we actually did that in a real studio uh, with this guy named Don Budd. The reason why I'm saying all this is because these demos would end up getting shopped everywhere to like every record label. And every we would, we would go and like showcase for these labels and all of them passed, all of them didn't want to sign the band for whatever reason. And um, so you, you guys, you join the band, you play this huge show and then you guys go back to rehearse and you're and and you tell them we're going to record an album now. 
some time went by, but yeah, that's basically what happened. I mean, we we had to write the songs first. So, I mean, we we wrote a whole bunch of songs and then when it got time to to record, it was like, yo, like we're just going to do this ourselves. And I think there was just a lot of like, okay, yeah, we can record demos ourselves, but we we're never going to actually put this out. And then demos turn into like, hey, this is getting released, you know. Um so but but the reason why I say all that is because it made it attractive to just buy the album and have it mixed as opposed to spending all this money to send a band into the recording studio. Um so I guess you could say that the cost of doing business with us was cheaper than another band that they would sign where they would have to re-record the entire album. Right. So so Anyway, the reason why, you know, to go to your question, like, what was, what did it feel like, you know, to get a record deal or whatever? Um, we had been passed on by every single label, like literally every single label. Like we, we showcased for everybody. Who who did you showcase for? Every record label, every major record label. They flew us to New York. They flew us to L.A., you know all kinds of showcases um how does that happen you know what what was you guys record this album you do it yourself and then all of a sudden these people are just calling you i mean something in the middle had to happen yeah i mean i think it just takes someone that believes and i think at the time like there were some guys that were like already kind of doing things like i think the whole like saying that that the cream rises to the top, you know, is kind of true. Like if you, if you make good music, um, then it will get noticed. You know, I'm not saying that we made <laughs> the best music in the world. I'm just saying that, you know, for the time and, and for what it was at the time, like, and the bands that we were associated with, like, you know, we were definitely making some noise. A lot of that legwork, to be honest, was done when I wasn't in the band, they had already gained some momentum from the album that they had released before. Now that album wasn't enough for them to get a record deal um, uh, because if it was, they would have already been signed. But um, it was it was definitely like a grind. I guess you could say that when we actually did get signed, I, my, the feeling that I felt was like, okay, did we just get signed? It was that. It was like, it wasn't like this big, like, oh my God, it's not like the movies at all. It was very much like underwhelming. Like, I think we just got signed. I'm not 100% sure. (laughs) It's literally... I think think this might be good, but I'm not quite sure. Well, because you, like, a lot of these guys would make you sign these letters of intent. So you'd like... I, I mean, the band at the time had already had already been signed to Capitol Records for like 24 hours. Like they said, hey, welcome to Capitol Records. And then the next day, oh, just kidding. You know, we're not going to sign you. There was just a whole like circle jerk of like, you know, are we getting signed? Are we not getting signed? Like, the hell's the deal? (laughs) So it sounds like it was a really confusing process. And I mean, what was... What was that like getting a call saying that 
hey, we're Capitol Records and we're signing you. And then the next day having them call back. Um, I think that was like right before I joined, to be honest. But um, that's just like one example of how, you know, we would fly, like we showcased for Lava, which I think is like the same as like Maverick Records or something like that at the time. I, and I think now it's universal. But, um, you know, at the time that was like a big deal. Uh, we showcased for Jason Flom. He's like, he's still relevant to this day. Like he's, he's a big, big name in the music industry. And um, like we went and flew to New York, you know, met them. And I, you know, I thought we were going to get signed from that and uh, nothing happened. So, I mean. So you I, walk in and what, and so what's a, What's a showcase like? I mean, you get this ticket and they fly you out. And what was that whole whole experience? Um, a showcase could be anything from like playing a live show. It could just be honestly just meeting the band in person. Like it doesn't even have to be playing in front of them. Um, but um, like a, a showcase traditionally is like you play a live show in front of like three people in like a controlled environment in like a studio. And so you basically have to pretend that there's all this energy in the room when there's no energy in the room. It's, it's a very stale process, but a necessary one. I mean, these guys want to know what they're paying for. So you got to deliver the goods. You can't make excuses. So how many showcases did you guys do? Uh, we did a handful. Um, we were definitely looked at by every label and in conversations with, with, uh, every label, but we were, I mean, you have to think too, like a showcase is, could be a show. So I, I remember we played like a show in LA and like, there was, I want to say like six labels there. So everyone's there watching you and everyone's passing and they're just like, ah, I don't like this band, you know? Or maybe they like the band, but they just, we had this saying that labels don't want to find reasons to sign you. They want to find reasons not to sign you. So you feel like the label's coming and they're immediately in like a risk mitigation role instead 100%. of let's 100%. find this this new sound or this new talent. Oh yeah, they don't care about the new sound or new talent. They care about losing money on on a band. They want like the safest bet. So, um, hey, you know, and I get it, you know, musicians make art and record labels sell art. So for them, it's a business. I was just, I was honestly just happy to be playing. Like I didn't deserve any of that. I was just grateful. Like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really stoked to be here. Like, let's just make this happen, you know? Right. The cool part about getting flown out um, is that you get to spend their money, which I guess, here's the thing, if, if you get signed by that label, you have to end up paying them back all the money, including the money you spent when you were showcasing. If you don't get signed by them, then you don't have to pay them back anything. It's a tax write-off for them. So you're showcasing, and they're making you feel like a rock star. Oh, 100%. That part of that part of it was amazing. So, what was it like feeling 
like you had made it, you know, feeling like you had risen to this level and then just not hearing anything. It's frustrating. It's really frustrating. You, you, you question if you're even good, like you question, like, I don't know. It doesn't make you want to stop. If anything, it makes you want to push even harder. But like, you know, the fact that someone's giving you the attention, it makes you believe that it's possible. You just have to keep, you just have to keep pushing. Like, it, 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 I think that whole experience just really, um, like it was definitely fun, the showcasing, like, cause you get all that free, free stuff. But, uh, but um, I think what it really does is it lets you know that none of this is impossible, that anything that you want to do, any dream that you want to achieve is possible. You just have to be willing to put in the work. And for whatever reason, they didn't want to sign us at the time. Um, but like, hey, you know, that just means you got to write better songs, <laughs> you know? So, so go write better songs, you know? So tell me about the time when it finally happened. You know, what was that? What, when was the big break? Well, the big break was um, there was a really tiny label. I want to say the label was Indigoot Records, I think. And I think Chevelle was like their biggest artist. I'm not 100% sure, but um, they wanted to sign us uh, for, which at the, at the time was a pretty decent amount of money. We were like, you know, definitely stoked about it. And then it was that, that all of a sudden Wind Up came in, because I guess Wind Up had been interested the entire time, but it was kind of like looking at a hot girl across the room but not making your move until another guy starts talking to her and you're like, well, wait a second. No, like I'm not going to have you talk to her. I'm going to talk to her, you know, type of thing. That's the way wind up did it. And they were, they saw that Indigoot was interested. And so they decided to offer us uh quadruple the amount of money, something like that. And, um, we were like, okay, well, I guess we're going to go to Windup because they're offering way more money. So, so once you got the deal, was there this new level of responsibility that you hadn't felt before on your shoulders? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we had a manager at the time, so um, you know, it, it's a funny thing when you get signed. Like, you realize about like tax brackets and like. Um, manager fees and all this like when you enter a record deal as big as ours you are automatically like on a higher tax bracket so 50 percent of our money went straight to taxes or at least not straight to taxes but like you know in a fund being held being held yeah so like 50 percent of our money is straight to taxes um 20% to the manager, 5% to the accountant, 5% to the lawyer. So like 30% of your money is gone straight for that. And then 50% of your money of the gross is for taxes. So you're really left with like, you know, not that much money and then divided by four people. And then you're supposed to live off that for like two years. You end up, <laughs> you end up having to get a job again. <laughs> 
<laughs> are you able to say what your guys's deal was and and regardless of what that big dollar amount was you know what the reality of what you had to live off of just to kind of put it into perspective for people that you know hear about these artists getting these big deals sure i you know i won't say exactly how much it is but um you know it was a six-figure deal and at the end of it i think my draw was like you know like a thousand bucks a month or something like that so so you were literally a starving musician yes and no because like yeah you're making a thousand a month but you're also starting to tour and stuff like that so like if you're on tour you're not really paying for rent or or for food or for um alcohol <laughs> you're not paying for entertainment you're really paying for nothing to be honest and and being signed like your you know companies start flowing you free clothes and and stuff like that so it really like you know my expenses i guess you could say were considerably less than the average person so that thousand dollars went a lot further than than somebody else's thousand dollars before you guys got signed you were what renting an apartment i rented a house with um with these uh san jose state football players and uh that's yeah that's where i was living and I was paying like $200 a month to rent a garage. So it was roach infested, like roaches everywhere. It was awful. I, I lived really cheap. I lived in the ghetto, <laughs> is what, what it really boiled down to. So what's it like going from where you're on tour and you kind of have stuff being covered for you to then going off tour and having to have all of a sudden this new responsibility of, you know, we got to find a roof over our head and somewhere to live. And we're only making a thousand dollars a month. For me, I, I just always found a way. I also had an arrangement with this, uh, flower company when I was signed and, uh, I would deliver flowers. Um, I basically like, um, I'd get off tour and, you know, everyone on tour is thinking that like, oh, these guys have all this money, whatever. And then I get off tour and I'm delivering flowers. So how did that feel, you know, where on one hand, you know, you guys, so, so you guys get signed in what, 2004? We got signed in 2003. We made our record in 2002. It took a year after making that record for us to get a record deal and in 2003 and then they didn't put the record out for an entire year they just held on to it so we signed with them and basically a year of waiting around for them to even put the record out so you you already spent like a year's worth of that money doing nothing so you, know? you guys got signed and then they mixed it and then you're just kind of waiting? I mean... Yeah, basically. My advice to anyone who is um, who gets a record deal is don't quit your day job until, <laughs> until you're actually like doing something. We 
hope you enjoyed hearing our first interview with Adrian Robeson on All About the Drums. In a few weeks, we'll welcome Adrian back onto the show and hear about the end of Strata and the birth of Beta State. Make sure to submit your questions now for the next show with Adrian at allaboutthedrums.com. You could also find show notes, links to Adrian's current band, Beta State, music videos, and much more at allaboutthedrums.com. You're also hearing Beta State's newest track, Make It Up To You, which is available on iTunes now. Please let us know what drummers, percussionists, and drum manufacturers you want to hear from. You could submit feedback and suggestions for new shows at www.allaboutthedrums.com. Look out next week for our coverage from the 2017 NAMM show. Until then, I'm Chris Sears, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of All About the Drums. Drums.